0: Your necessities, you know, your coffee and your scriptures. It also will be helpful if you have a copy of our confession of faith. Uh, you will you will profit from having that a copy with you this morning. If you don't have one, you can you can read along in our Trinity hymnal. Grab one of the Trinity hymnals. It's on page six seventy two in the back of the hymnal. Is a copy of our confession. We'll be looking today at, at chapter three. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we open uh, our confession of faith. And we, we do so as, as a sort of road map, uh, a tour guide to, to the Scriptures. So this is a doctrinal study of the Scriptures, a systematic study of the Scriptures, uh, by way of our confession of faith. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us. <clears throat> oh God and our Father, we are grateful uh, for your mercy to us and the great mercy of revealing yourself to us not only through the light of nature in which the heavens themselves declare your glory and majesty, but also by means of your word written down to us, written down and and passed to us in in an objective, tangible form that we can study, that we can look into, that we can carefully consider. And we pray today as as we consider the topic, the doctrine of your eternal decree, that you would give us the help that we need We confess that we are in waters that are too deep for us, as we consider the eternal purposes and incomprehensible mind of God. But we pray that you will help us to confess clearly what your word says is true, and not to to entertain ourselves with vain speculations about those things that are beyond our grasp. We ask that you give to us the grace of discernment, the grace of of clarity, uh, the grace of knowing our triune God. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we've taken a, an extended break. Uh, we work, we're working through this first six chapters of our confession. And I've titled this, this general section of our confession, the following after Dr. Jim Renahan's overall outline, just first principles. These are the foundations of our faith. And in this, we see the first chapter is the doctrine of the Scriptures. And so we've looked at that. We look at the, the doctrine of God himself, what we would call theology proper in chapter 2. And then we see in chapter 3, God's eternal decree. But the chapter is entitled, Of God's Decree. We're going to work through, uh, Lord willing, paragraph 1 uh, today. This is, um, I, I, we look at, at evangelicalism in general, even among conservative Christians. You're going to find broad agreement normally in chapter 1, although I would argue many of them agree because they don't understand what we confess in chapter 1 on the Scriptures. But you find general agreement in chapter 1. You find even broad agreement in chapter 2 uh, with respect to confessing a Trinitarian God. There are uh, aspects of, of our Reformed understanding of theology proper that, that we're seeking to recover, uh, that have been lost or diluted or ignored about the nature Uh, and the authority, and the essence of God. But for the most part, you'll still find general agreement. It's really in chapter 3 that we began as Reformed Christians to make some very careful distinctions uh, compared to other Christians, particularly coming out of the 17th century. Uh, Whether whether it was the aberrations and the non-Christian teachings of Rome, or whether it was the errors of the Anabaptists or some of the general Baptists with respect to God's sovereignty. And so I want to remind you of a couple of of interpretive principles as we sort of reorient ourselves now and come back after a break, and we enter into chapter 3, a couple of of key interpretive principles. And the first one, and I'll I'll use uh, Dr. Renahan's uh, term, we need to remember to read the Confessions sideways. Remember that word. Just read it sideways. And that means that we need to read back and forth. And so that things that are introduced to us, for example, in chapter 1 about the doctrine of the Scriptures, or in chapter 2 on the doctrine of God, are built upon in subsequent chapters. And so, for example, we're going to read in a moment, God hath decreed in Himself. Well, that phrase, in Himself, stands upon the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God himself, theology proper, that's articulated in chapter 2. And that, in turn, is dependent upon the revelation of God, of himself, that's recorded for us in chapter 1. And then we're going to see things that are foreshadowing, are going to be picked up again in subsequent chapters. So, for example, the, there's a phrase that we'll read here in a moment the liberty or contingency of second causes. So we're introduced to a phrase here that's not defined for us, but it's going to be brought up again in just a few chapters in the doctrine of providence. So there will be concepts that are introduced that we will build upon either later in this chapter, or later yeah, later in chapter 3, or in subsequent chapters of the confession. And also there are concepts that have already been introduced to us that we need to be conscious to pull forward into this chapter. So that's, that's the first interpretive principle, is to re- read it sideways, to remember to go back and forth. It's like a woven tapestry. Now, you, you can't just read it sequentially and, and forget what you've read previously. You need to be able to, in your mind, build upon what you've read. But the second interpretive principle is this. The f- generally speaking, the first paragraph in every chapter in the Confession introduces concepts and, and describes the overall doctrine that's going to be worked out in the next few paragraphs in that chapter. So, for example, in chapter 3 of our confession, of the decree, there are seven paragraphs. The first paragraph is going to introduce concepts that are going to be worked out in more detail and unpacked in those subsequent paragraphs. And not only that, but the first chapter in each general section of the Confession introduces a doctrine that's going to be fleshed out and carried forward in those subsequent chapters. So the beginning of this section of our confession is the very first chapter, chapter one of the Scriptures. So we're bringing concepts and building concepts that are based upon the Scriptures. We we confess that that it is possible to know many things about God according to the light of nature, right? We, we We can look into the heavens and see something about God. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, not only the existence but something of his attributes. Paul says in, in Romans 1 that the heavens themselves declare the invisible attributes of God so that man is without excuse. And then not only that in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul tells us that man's conscience even the most die-hard self-professed atheist is actually a liar. You know that there's no such thing as an atheist, not really. You have a deceived man who thinks he's an atheist, but his own conscience bears testimony. And Paul says, now that, that, that same man may suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but it doesn't mean it's not there. So we're working through those, those principles. Let's read the confession sideways, and let's recognize that it's built layer upon layer within a chapter and among chapters. So with that under, understanding in mind, let's dive in. Let's read chapter 3. And and I want to try to outline this under three basic headings. We'll have to expound upon those those headings. But the first thing we see is is, is simply an affirmation of God's sovereignty. There's a positive statement, or several positive statements affirming God's sovereignty. But we also see then several negative statements. There are actually some negations, which might at first strike us as odd. That we would have certain things that we negate or state negatively and say God's sovereignty is not this or that. But those are as we read through, those listen to that. That's that's very important to have these these negations. And then we combine the affirmations and the negations to end with the very last phrase in ch- in chapter 3 paragraph 1 is it says, a sense of vindication of God's sovereignty. So we have a vindication of God's sovereignty. So let's read the paragraph. I'll read it follow along in your copy. And and let's let's notice Uh, as I read, the affirmations of God's sovereignty, followed by the negations regarding God's sovereignty, and then lastly, the vindication of His sovereignty. So we confess the following on the authority of God's Word. God has decreed in Himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things, Whatsoever comes to pass, yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. notice the affirmations we we affirm we confess from the scriptures that god's sovereignty is absolute it is free it is unchangeable or immutable and it's expressed in this way god hath decreed in himself again this is a reference back to chapter two about the nature of god himself that god is I say, he is not dependent upon any creature. He's not dependent upon anything that he has made in order to be God or remain God. His wisdom is not dependent upon any creature. So God hath decreed in himself. Then there's the phrase, from all eternity. And Dr. Renahan makes a careful distinction here. It doesn't say in eternity, as if there was a sequence of time but from eternity. Meaning, it's not as if we look back before creation and there was some point in time in which God decreed all things. It's from eternity. The, the, the decrees of God are, are so cl- closely connected to his very essence as the divine being, as the infinite, immutable, incomprehensible divine being that we can confess his decree is from eternity. It does not exist at a point on a linear timeline. It exists in God himself, in the very mind of God. So from all of eternity, God has decreed in himself. And here's the affirmations. From the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. From the wise and holy counsel of his own will. Also, we confess that this this decree is freely... And unchangeably, there's nothing contingent, there's nothing outside of God on which he rests his decree. There, there is nothing in God that depends upon something else happening in order for his decree to come about. Have you ever had this thought, or maybe you've even said this out loud, I, want, I don't want to be outside of God's will. What's well, an interesting statement, isn't it? Because we can, we can say it in one way, and it's, it's a perfectly acceptable and true statement. God has said, for example, you shall not murder. Well, someone is outside of God's will if they take a human life. Or, as Jesus says, even if they've held anger in their hearts against their brother, they are, in a sense, outside of God's will. But are they outside of God's decree? No. Now we'll get to the, the, the perplexities and the conundrum that comes with that idea here in a few moments. But it is impossible, it is impossible ultimately for anyone to be outside of God's will, outside of God's decree. God has decreed all things freely and unchangeably. God has not set things in motion with certain contingencies as if God had written a choose-your-own-adventure book and his creatures were responsible for making the right decisions in order for his decree to come about. His decree is free. It's unchangeable. It's comprehensive. All things whatsoever comes to pass. Now, if we meditate upon that seriously, two things are going to happen. One, our heads are going to hurt. You get the theological equivalent of a brain freeze, don't you? When you think about it, God has decreed everything. Even the most wicked things that, have, that man has ever done as part of God's decree.
1: And he has decreed all things
0: to come to pass exactly as he designed them to do. Ephesians one, verse eleven, we read this in him we also have been made and we we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end or to the purpose that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. You'll notice that's one of the footnotes. If you have a, a copy of the Confession that includes the scriptural references, Ephesians 1.11 is one of the footnotes there. Also in, in Hebrews 6, verse 17, In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So brothers and sisters, when we think about God's decree, the things that we, we confess in very, very short sentences, very shortly phrased concepts, and yet incomprehensible when we set our minds to think carefully about them, that God hath decreed in himself. There's nothing outside of God on which his, his sovereign decree rests. There's nothing contingent. There's, there's, not, there's no what-ifs. There's no... There's no uh, uh, there's not an infinite number of possibilities and God is steering things just so that they work out accidentally. No, God has decreed all things that are going to happen. And we're going to see later in, in this chapter that that means that God has also decreed even the means of how things will take place. And this, this decree is from eternity. <clears throat> we can take comfort in this, knowing that this is according to the most wise and holy counsel of God's will. I've mentioned this before. We, we heard an interview with Simonetta Carr uh, a number of years ago, and she and her husband had lost their, their son uh, to drugs. And and describing that grievous phenomenon and, and, and wrestling with she and her husband as Reformed Christians, wrestling with the idea, the concept of God's sovereignty and His providence over all things. And she made a very insightful comment. She said, if, if God were not good, then the doctrine of divine providence would be of no comfort. If God were not good, the doctrine of His eternal decree would not comfort us, would it? It's, not, it's one thing to say, well, God, God is, is, is all-powerful, God has decreed everything that happens, and he's malevolent. He's wicked, he's evil. Well, well that would be the worst kind of tyranny, wouldn't it? An unimaginable tyranny. But when we confess that it is by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, and then when we reach back into chapter 2, and we see that this decree is of himself, or decreed in himself, he who is most wise, most good, most just. That's where our comfort rests, as his people. The doctrine of God's eternal decree, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in an absolute sense shouldn't unsettle us. If we know something about the character of our God, it should encourage us. It is a God who is good and who is most wise, who is most gracious, most merciful, this is the God who is sovereign. This is the God who has decreed all things that will come to pass, necessarily and unchangeably and freely. Dr. Renahan makes an insightful comment. He says, this eternal decree is accomplished in the created realm. So the the, the decree itself is from eternity. It it exists in in the mind of God outside of space and time, outside of his creation, and yet the decree is carried out in time and space it's carried out in the creation he goes on everything that happens external to god is the realization of his holy will it is not simply a general decree stating for example that each autumn leaves will fall from trees but rather that a very specific it's a very specific decree it teaches that each leaf will turn a certain shade will fall at a certain time and to a certain place will be blown by the wind and will decay in the way that God sets out for its end. There are no contingencies or variables. God rules over all. He freely and unchangeably has decreed all things. Now, I hope you already feel the dilemma. that There is a dilemma that's addressed with the negations. Because there may already be in your mind this sort of, but what about? If it is the case that God has decreed in himself everything that's going to come to pass freely and unchangeably, then what do we do with evil? This is, if it's not the first question, it's one of the first two or three questions that an atheist will raise. What about the dilemma of evil? If God is good... And evil happens, then maybe he's not really omnipotent. Maybe he can't control everything. This is, this is sort of the, the idea of the Arminian. That, that, well, yes, we'll grant that God is good, but, but in the end, bless his heart, there's some things he just can't control. Because men are sovereign after all, and they do what they're going to do, and God would love to do something about it, but he's, he's impotent. Or there are others you who know, would acknowledge God is all powerful. But maybe he's not all good. Maybe God is actually a participant in some way in sin. So you, you kind of feel the dilemma. I mean, so when atheists raise the question, on one hand, there's a, there is a, an element of honesty in it, but only because, or only after you recognize the fallacious foundation on which the question rests. So we need, we need some negations, and, and the Confession does this for us. Again, in the very first paragraph, we see this, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his, only, only will, of his own will, freely and unchangeable, all things whatsoever comes to pass, yet. Or, but. So here's the negations, yet. So as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. So when you see those words like neither or nor, those are negations. And we saw the same kind of pattern with, with respect to theology proper. We can say that there are negations with respect to God himself. God is not mutable. We say he's immutable. He is impassable, meaning he's not passable. He doesn't have the passions that we have.
1: Yet, we see here,
0: he is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. So when you hear someone raise that objection, notice a couple of things. Number one, it's not a new objection. From time immemorial, that that has been the case. In fact, in the 17th century, as as our fathers in the faith were, were writing down, expressing these very thoughts, The Westminster Divines uh, issued and published an entire pamphlet just on this subject alone. And it was, I don't remember that, I didn't write it in my notes, but the title was about that law. Classic Puritan title. But it was in defense of this idea that God is sovereign over all things and yet he is not the author of sin. If you read very far on this subject, you'll you'll run across the term theodicy. Theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I, or D Y. D-I-C-Y. And, and it's, it's combining two Greek words, two Greek concepts. You, you hear the word theos, God, and also the word dachaios, which means justification. So it's a justification or a defense of God. It's the idea that God is, in fact, sovereign over all things, and yet he is not the author or the participant in sin. Listen to Stephen Charnock. This is from his book, The The Existence and Attributes of God. And he's meditating upon this very idea. And he says, The holiness of God is not blemished by His secret will to suffer sin to enter into the world. God never willed sin by His preceptive will. It was never founded upon or produced by any word of His as the creation was. He never said, Let there be sin under the heavens. He said, let there be water under the heavens. Genesis 1.9. Nor does he will it by infusing any habit of it or by stirring up inclinations to it. No, God tempts no man. James 1.13. Nor does he will it by his approving will. It is detestable to him, nor ever can be otherwise. He cannot approve it either before commission or after surely, other objections are going to come. If, if God is indeed sovereign, how is it that he, so to speak, doesn't get his hands dirty? How is it that he escapes any blame for the presence of sin, for the presence of evil? Because really, the other questions that come then, if, if God really is sovereign, then is man free? Is, is there any legitimacy to a freedom in the will of man? So so our confession gives us two more negations, wrestling with these same questions. The next negations are, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Anybody have any idea or could give me a definition or an example? What is a second cause? What do you think is meant in the confession, by a second cause. Matthew. Well, there, there's a kind of a cause and effect, or a cause and a solution, but but in a in the in a theological con- concept, the idea of first cause would be who? God Himself, because again. He has decreed in himself all things that will come to pass, freely, unchangeably, certainly. Well, who then is the second cause? Me. You. An animal. A
1: creature. An inanimate
0: object that God has placed in motion. The orbit of a planet. The thermonuclear processes of the sun. All those might be Considered second causes. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We have a a vivid illustration of this in Acts chapter 4. So the scene is James and John have been arrested.
1: They've been taken before the Jewish authorities, they've been beaten,
0: they were ultimately released. And in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, look what happens here. Look what's recorded for us. When they were released, this is James and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, this is the whole assembly, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why? did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Without looking, who can tell me where that reference is from? Psalm 2, exactly right. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now here's a vivid illustration of this first cause and second cause. Look back at verse 28, or 27 and 28. Here's, here's this picture of, of Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. They all conspired together. By the way, just as the scriptures had foretold, But all this according to God's decree, God's eternal purpose. God had decreed from the beginning all things that would come to pass, even those things concerning the murder of his own son. And yet God is not the author of the sin of Pilate or of Herod or of the Jews or of any voice in the crowd that shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. Every man, every woman was responsible for his or her own sin. And yet God had purposed and even ordained every single event to work out just as he had decreed. And of course, one of the most famous examples is you could turn to Genesis chapter 50 and read to the whole narration, the whole narrative of the life of Joseph. But there at the end of that, that story, that dramatic final scene where Dad has died, and now the brothers are shaking in their boots, terrified of what Joseph will do. and suspicious that he doesn't really have their good in mind. He really doesn't have favor towards them. It was only for the sake of their father that he spared their lives. But now that Dad is gone, surely he's going to kill us. And they knew he would have been just in doing so. But what does Joseph say? What you intended for evil, God meant for good to bring it about as it is this day, a salvation of many. So God intended good, but he used even the thoughts and intentions and actions of wicked men to accomplish his decree. Now, how do we reconcile this? And see, by by making these statements, all the Reformed confessions affirm that God's sovereignty is absolute, it's free, it's immutable. And yet at the same time, all the Reformed confessions Affirm that God is not the author of sin. He doesn't participate in sin. He has no fellowship in sin. Nor does he take away the liberty and the responsibility of human beings. See, there can be this temptation of fatalism that, well, if God's decreed everything, it doesn't matter what we do. No, because God has decreed everything, it it matters very much what we do because we are responsible for the decisions that we make. We are responsible for our words. We are responsible for our actions. And this is why, of course, it is absolutely just for God to hold sinners accountable. It is just for God to hold sinners accountable. Man alone is responsible for his sin. It is not God who is responsible for sin. And we shouldn't take the bait. When an atheist, or when a skeptic, or when a deconstructor, or whatever the the in vogue terms are, begins to to blame God for sin. We need to see it for what this is. This is a hard-hearted attack on God and a refusal to take responsibility. Michael Horton, in his book, Pilgrim Theology, makes a a really helpful statement. He says, shifting the focus from our own sin to God, ontology and metaphysics, is one of the sources of dualism, ancient and modern. We must shift the ground back to our covenantal transgression rather than than ontological fault. What's he saying? He's saying we need to take responsibility for our own sin, our own actions. If we we want to think about the question of evil in the world, where does the blame lie? With man, not God. He goes on, Romans chapters 1 and 3 show that in Adam we all have become false witnesses, which is a form of evil, even if we are unaware that we are false witnesses. When we distort God's created design, we are false witnesses. As, as sinful men, we are bearing false, women, false image about the image of God, false witness about the image of God. We are distorting that. It's almost as if we have presented to other men a kind of a funhouse mirror, a distorted view of who God is. But, in order for us to really understand this distinction, the careful distinction that Reformed theologians have made between God's absolute, free, and immutable sovereignty, and yet God has no fellowship in sin, we really need to have an accurate view of what sin is and where it comes from. Because as, as Michael Horton points out, this is the source of, of dualism, whether it's ancient or modern. This is the, the, you know, the George Lucas, Star Wars, uh, there's, there's the the dark side of the force and the good side of the force. And there, you know, it's just, it's, it, you never know which one's going to triumph and win. These are two equal and opposite opposing forces. Well, that, that misrepresents the very nature of evil. Evil itself is not some entity or some substance, it is the absence of good. In like fact, Dolezal defines it as evil is good, is, is the lack of good where good ought to be. It's the lack of good where good ought to be. Listen to Bavink. This is a longer quote, but I think it's a helpful one. Hermann Bobbing, this is in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics. He says, "...the insistence on sin as privation, or, or something that's lacking..." it must be remembered is a repudiation of all Manichaean notions that evil exists as an independent power over against God. So again, he's speaking about this this idea of dualism. This idea that that, that evil is is an equal but opposite force to God. But he says that, that we have to insist that sin is actually a privation. It's a lacking of that which is good. He goes on, However, because sin is always concrete and only occurs as the wrong form of an act, that is essentially good, it may be hard to separate matter and form, just as at any given time the heat of a stove cannot be separated from the stove. And especially, that's one of the things we have to teach our little ones, right? That the heat and the stove are functionally inseparable. Right? Yet, just as the stove is not identical with its heat, so the being or act to which sin is attached cannot be identified with sin. Even in the case of blasphemy, the power needed to express it and the language in which it is couched are themselves good. What makes it and all things wrong and sinful is the deformity, the departure from divine law. God's law alone is the standard of sin. He is the only agent who has absolute authority over us and can bind and obligate us in our consciences. The violation of all other laws whether aesthetic, social, political, ecclesiastical and so on, is sinful only insofar as it directly or indirectly includes a violation of the moral law. It is this moral law, which was implanted in humans at their creation, had its post-fall effect in their consciences, was announced on Mount Sinai and remains a binding rule of life for Christian believers, as well that is the source of the knowledge of sin. Do you hear his argument? He said, we need to understand in our mind that sin is not some just, just power that exists equal but opposite to God. Sin is always the deprivation. It, it is always the lacking of that which is good. It is always the falling short. It, it is that which is, is the holding back of the good that was due, or the corruption or perversion of the good that was due. I think we see this in that first temptation in the garden. When, when Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and what does he do? He questions the goodness of God. He says, has God really said? He says, but if you do eat this, look, Eve, look at this fruit. If you would eat this, it will make you wise. It will give you the knowledge of good and evil. And the implication there is God is withholding from you some good that you ought to have. So the sin was the deprivation of what was right and good and holy. The belief in God's goodness and, and the belief in God's word. And so this understanding these negations, we come back to, to the, the confession. Yet, here's the negation. God is not the author of sin. God has not, he has not willed sin into existence. It is all part of his decree But the origin of sin is not God, it's man. The origin of of sin is the corrupted thoughts, the corrupted intentions, the corrupted actions of men. So God is not the author of sin. In fact, God doesn't even participate. He has any fellowship in sin. It is not God who causes or tempts or, or brings us to the point of sin. What does James say? It is actually we're lured and enticed by our own flesh, by the lusts of our own hearts. It is not God who provokes us to sin. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. Pilate was free to act according to the corruption of his heart. Herod was free to act. The Jews were free to act. Every member of the crowd who shouted out, crucify him, crucify him, was free to act according to the corruptions of their own hearts. And yet all of those things happened according to the perfect decree of God. It is not, and we're going to see this later on in the confession, it is not merely a foreknowledge. It's not that God looks through the corridors of times and sees ahead of time what's going to happen. He decrees all things that's going to happen. And he actually uses in the secret counsel of his own will, in the incomprehensible counsel of his own will, he uses the evil deeds and intentions and words of men to accomplish that. Now, I'll confess to you, I can't wrap my head around all that. And I think anyone who says they can is not really to be trusted. We're dealing with the very mind of God, and we're dealing with things that that might appear to us according to our human understanding, to be contradictory because we can't comprehend. We, we know in ourselves we don't have the capacity to use evil to accomplish good. I think it's Bob I can't remember. It's not in my notes. That uses an illustration that I think is, is helpful that any father knows that, that he could very skillfully maybe use a, a sharp kitchen knife and use it for good but no sane father, no sane mother would give that to a two-year-old and say, you know, go knock yourself out, go help yourself. The child is far more likely to harm themselves with that than render any good. And, And he draws a similar conclusion that God is able, because of his essential nature, because of his sinless perfection, to use even the evil deeds of men to accomplish his purposes but none of us would ever be guiltless to do evil and think it will, will accomplish good and yet isn't that often the lie of our enemy if you will lie it just in this one case just in this one circumstance then this good will come but don't believe it don't take the bait If you'll be unfaithful just in this circumstance, it will produce this good.
1: Don't fall for it.
0: Lastly, we'll close with this. Notice the very last phrase. So we have these affirmations, we have these negations with respect to the sovereignty of God. We have this last statement, in which, that that in which is, is meant to capture both the affirmations and the negations. In which appears... God's wisdom in disposing all things and his power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that part. That works itself out in, in the rest of the chapter. But here, we have the appearance of the wisdom and the power and the faithfulness of God as he works out all these things that were decreed in himself from eternity, there we have a vindication of God's sovereignty. We have the vindication. We have the theodicy. Uh, God is sovereign, and yet God is not the author of sin. God is sovereign, and all that he decrees will come to pass perfectly, immutably, unchangeably, and yet God does not have his hands dirty when you sin. God is not to be blamed when I sin. God is not to be blamed when we look out at the world and we see all manner of evil, and we think, where is God? Why isn't his hand restraining this? Saints believe what we confess to be true, that this, these things are happening according to the perfect, most wise, most good mind of God and content yourself with that belief rather than wanting to content yourself with a full explanation of why it's happening. See, now we're back to the statement that, that Horton made. Shifting the focus from our own sin to God is one of the sources of dualism, ancient and modern. We want to take the focus off of ourselves and, and blame God, or maybe as more sophisticated Christians, we, we, we don't want to blame God directly, we just want to hint at it a little bit. Or just sort of raise the question and just leave it sitting there on the desk. We don't want to blame him exactly. But we want to avoid our own responsibility, don't we? And sometimes it can disturb us to think of the real answer, or the real problem, the real dilemma, is just how wicked and dark and sinful men's
1: hearts really can be. They would actually crucify the word of glory.
0: They would actually look at this holy, sinless, spotless man and desire to murder him. Because we look at our our sermon text this morning, I'm not going to preach it yet. I'll uh, I'll wait before I preach it. But we have there in Mark chapter 1, Jesus standing up in front of these these hard hearted Pharisees, he, he, he's able to discern their hearts. And you can't you just see the scene of sitting there with their hand with their arms crossed, just, just waiting for him. Just waiting for him to stumble according to their understanding of the Sabbath. And they wanted to withhold good
1: from a fellow human being. And we
0: see, of course, the Lord's response to that. It's, it's anger. He's grieved in his his spirit against their hardness of hearts. And so the the, the same kind of of darkness, the same kind of sin, the same kind of hard-heartedness exists in every human being. That's where the fault of sin, that's where the fault of the dilemma of evil, that's where the problem of evil in our world rests, is in the sinfulness of man. Not in God's decree. I'll close there, so we'll, we'll unpack more of this as the subsequent chapters unfold, um, and making some distinctions between sovereignty and foreknowledge, um, looking at how this, this doctrine applies in not only the human sphere, the created the physical, tangible world, but also in the created spiritual world of angels and demons. And um, the water doesn't get uh, less deep as we get further into the chapter. But it really is, these are glorious doctrines for us to grab hold of and to rest in, even when, not if, but when, we don't fully comprehend them. Matthew? Mm Mm-hmm? Yeah. It is. It, it it shows the the surpassing goodness and mercy of God to overcome even this.
1: Yeah. Amen.
0: All right. Well, I will pray and we'll take a about a fifteen minute recess and we'll join again for worship. Father, we are grateful that. We worship a God who is sovereign, who has decreed all things whatsoever will come to pass. And I I pray, Father, by by your grace, by the power of your Spirit, that that all of us, that all of your people will come to hold that doctrine as as a a great comfort to our souls, as a great encouragement to us in the midst of, of trials and difficulties and the sorrows of this age in the midst of our own wrestling with sin, in the midst of our own failures, that we would find a great comfort in the fact that that none of these things have happened outside of your decree and that you are an all-wise, most good God who is using these things to accomplish your perfect will. I pray that you will grant to us a peace with that, a comfort with that, and an abiding joy and worship of our Savior in light of how you have revealed yourself to us in this way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.